0: wherever you get your podcasts. If you were watching TV on October 20th, 1973, and you got up from your couch and turned the knob to change the stations, here was your choice. You could watch CBS, All in the Family, Archie Bunker, and Meathead, and see the episode Henry's Farewell. This is the last episode featuring Henry Jefferson. ABC. You'd have The Partridge Family, Double Trouble. Dates with two girls for the same night give Keith a real problem. And on NBC, Emergency, Heavyweight. Paramedics Gage and DeSoto are trapped between battling neighbors. Later, there would be MASH and The Six Million Dollar Man on. Carol Burnett, Bob Newhart, and Mary Tyler Moore would all feature on the TV sets on Saturday night. But it's also likely that your TV programming would have been interrupted for a big news story. The president firing a prosecutor and two members of his Justice Department. The signature American event of presidential law enforcement firing happened on a Saturday because on Friday the president was still trying to negotiate a deal to avoid all this. A deal between the federal court judge, the special prosecutor designated to investigate the break in at the Watergate Hotel one year before, which by October 1973 had ballooned into a huge deal, and the Senate committee that was investigating Watergate. All of those players. Watergate in 1972 was a joke. It was laughed at by the powers that be in Washington, except for the intrepid reporters of the Washington Post and a couple of the New York Times, the McGovern campaign, a few people bringing it up. It wasn't any kind of thing that was going to bring a presidency down. Inside the Beltway story, well, the next year, really the complaint of one of the defendants in the Watergate burglary case, complaint to a judge that a mockery was being made of justice and the White House was involved, required Senate investigation. Then, a White House counsel, nervous about his own role that could be construed as illegal, turns witness. The Butterfield revelation that there were tapes of the Nixon White House, that you could hear everything that was being said. The appointment of Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox in May 1973. And he wants those tapes. Well, Nixon says, I have conflict of branch issues here. The executive branch has to be able to conduct itself. Prosecutor wants him. He goes to court. Nixon says, look, can we just have one person of great independence who can listen to those tapes? And of course, the White House already knows who it is. John Stenitz of Mississippi. He's a Democrat, but he's a Nixon-supporting Democrat and the Senate Watergate Committee is headed up by Sam Irvin, another Southern Democrat. Stennis is very respected. His integrity would be very hard to question. In fact, I can't even tell you what Stennis would have done with the tapes. Maybe a deal had been worked out, but I can't necessarily say that viewing the situation myself. In any case, I believe Nixon felt he would get a fairer shake from John Stennis than he would from a court investigating it. It would be well, Stennis will just listen to the tapes and then see if there's anything worthy of anyone else listening to. The Senate committee head, Sam Irvin, actually agrees to this plan. He's convinced because Nixon's saying that there's problems in the Middle East. This is October 1973. you got Israel being attacked. He's got to be the leader of the free world and everything like that. Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox does not agree to such a deal. It would be a violation of his commitment to investigate everything that he had made when he took the appointment. He's a former law, Harvard Law professor who was appointed to this position by Attorney General Elliot Richardson. He still wants the tapes and goes to court to get them. The Court of Appeals, the federal court, rules against Nixon. You have to surrender the tapes. This is where you have the events of October 20th, 1973. Because the only way to stop this process now is to fire the person who's making the request for the tapes, and that's Archibald Cox. So, on Saturday afternoon, the Nixon White House summons Elliot Richardson to the Oval Office and tells him he needs to fire Archibald Cox. Richardson says absolutely not, that he has made a commitment to the Senate when he was confirmed, and he cannot do this. Okay, let's travel back 190 years from this time we're talking about. The Constitution doesn't exactly say that employees of the federal government work for the president alone, work for the American people, to an extent they work for Congress. doesn't exactly say that. It says the president can ask any question, ask for information from those officials. And it also gives him the executive power, which is a very vague term, but also a very broad term. And taken strictly, it means everything that is to be controlled is under his control. So it was still kind of something that needed to be decided. And it was in George Washington's time that he could command cabinet appointees, the, the, the people in the administration. They didn't work for Congress. They worked for him. So he could tell Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton what to do. Now, that's not the way George operated. He would be more consultative and, you know, ask Jefferson his opinion, ask Hamilton his opinion and the like. What about firing employees? Well, that was in the purview of the president, too. Congress tries to take it back during Andrew Johnson's administration after the Civil War. That's one of the reasons for his impeachment. The Supreme Court later says that that is unconstitutional, the bill of the Tenure of Office Act that tried to take that power away from the administration. So it's with the president. But still, you know, there's this constitutional DNA with any big federal employee, particularly like an attorney general, because they do work for the American people and the representatives of the American people are the Senate and the House. So there's a conflict there. Richardson feels he has instructions from the Senate that confirmed him. He resolves it by simply resigning. Nixon now calls over to the Justice Department, where the Deputy Attorney General, William Ruckelhaus, is waiting. He knows exactly what's going on. He just had canceled a trip to Michigan, where he's interviewing the the new potential VP, Gerald Ford. He calls that short and goes back to Washington, because he knows these events are going on. Now Chief of Staff Al Haig calls Ruckelhaus and says, You need to fire Cox. Ruckelhaus won't do it. Your commander-in-chief has given you an order. Ruckelhaus still refuses. And instead of firing Cox, he dictates a letter to be sent to the White House uh, by his assistant, uh, not even typed in these days, saying that his obligation was to the Constitution. He doesn't fire Cox. He runs down the hallway of the Justice Department, followed by a young Sam Donaldson, who is shouting questions that, of course, he refuses to answer. Years later, Ruckelhaus would say that that is his memory of the event. Just He can still see Donaldson's face shouting questions at him. He doesn't think this is going to be a huge news story. He goes to a friend's dinner party, and it just, the whole story explodes. Cox makes a big statement, whether we are to be governed by laws now in the hands of Congress and the American people. News organizations not used to operating on Saturday night like this are driven into overdrive. you got to remember, Richardson and Ruckelhaus were not opponents of Nixon. They were eyeglass-wearing government lawyers with no intent to try to bring down the presidency, Richardson was trying to broker the tape deal that Nixon wanted up until the day that he was fired. Nonetheless, they could not fire Cox, and they had to go. Now, there is a little bit of a controversy with Ruckelhaus. Uh, Technically, he was never fired, but he did offer his resignation, even though it was an ask for. With Richardson, they demanded his resignation. So, in effect, he knew it was coming. But there is a question as to whether there were two firings or three this night. One man who would not be fired, third in command, Deputy Attorney General Robert Bork. He has no qualms, and he fires Cox. Not just Cox, but 60 lawyers that are working for Cox. So the whole investigation is shut down on that Saturday night. Now, there's a side story to Bork. I mean, I think the way to think about it, because you know that later in the, in the 80s, he's going to be nominated by Ronald Reagan to be a Supreme Court justice, and a very conservative one, and his nomination is rejected in a very rare event, rejected by the Senate, so much so that he's now a verb to be Borked is to have your nominee be destroyed in the Senate. But being that I look at history and politics and I look at a lot of different administrations, you you can kind of piece together things. And and you see a pattern here, and it's a little side story with Bork. Bork carries out the firing of Cox. He probably supported Nixon. He was a Nixon supporter. He wasn't like the other guys, with my my duty to the Constitution. But he does say in his memoirs, which were published after his death, Bork says that he was offered a Supreme Court nomination if he went through with the firings. Now, again, I still suspect that Cox is a a loyalist anyway, but that's interesting to note. And it's not that crazy because previously Nixon had nominated William Reinquest. Now, Reimquist was in the Nixon Justice Department. He hadn't come from the federal court system. So it's not too crazy that uh, Bork could get a nomination down the road from Nixon. Now, we know that Reagan appoints Nixon down the line. We also know that Reagan is going to end up appointing several figures from the Nixon White House. One of them is Al Haig, who he's going to appoint to Secretary of State largely at Nixon's behest. We now know, I don't think this was something that was really known a lot in the 80s, that there are a continual stream of phone calls between Nixon and Ronald Reagan during Reagan's presidency and that that Reagan was eager to please Nixon where he could. So that sets up the possibility that this was a long-term payoff that occurred down the road in the late 80s. And as that kind of invisible bridge, you know, Pearlstein type theory that really Reagan kind of finished some things that Nixon would have wanted to do. Just something to note, no hard evidence of it except for Bork's note in his memoirs.
1: Wanna learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances.
0: And the response to Nixon is immediate and it is not good. Honk if you support impeachment, said signs right outside the White House immediately. And editorials from the New York Times and the Washington Post immediately call for impeachment. Time magazine doesn't even run editorials in its magazine, never has before. In October 1973, for the first time, they run an editorial calling for Nixon's impeachment. Here's comments from senators and congressmen. Senator Mark Hatfield observed that a move to impeach would come down like a flash flood sweeping down the pasture land. Senator Robert Packwood argued that there was no justification for Nixon's action. The office of the president does not carry with it a license to destroy justice in America. Freshman Congressman William Hudnut of Indiana, if Nixon gives the impression he is above the law, he is going to have an impeachment problem on his hands of considerable magnitude. They're all Republicans, Democrats attack too uh, Senator Edmund Muskie, very well known, very well regarded, very seen as very fair, urged the House to begin impeachment proceedings. Senator Edward Kennedy, of course, not as surprising decried the firing of Cox as a reckless act of desperation by a president who's afraid of the Supreme Court. California Congressman Don Edwards urged Nixon to admit that he had made a terrible mistake and resign. Everything from 1973 onward was downhill for Nixon. It never got better. He would try to claim, you know, national security privileges you need to keep the president there to keep working Nobody was buying it. It got worse and worse and polls lower and lower. And we know why we're talking about this. I mean, if not for this event, the Saturday Night Massacre of 1973, there would be no image fixed in our historical heads that cringes at the firing of any prosecutor by a president. It hadn't happened in such a dramatic way in 1973. Three at once presumably, and it appeared at least to be a kind of cover-up because it was on a Saturday night when the news organizations weren't, you know, as active. You have this kind of uh, same questions, and immediately everyone's going to the events of October 1973 with Trump's firing of James Comey, the FBI head. And the FBI was in the middle of conducting an investigation involving Russia's role in the election and any connection possibly to the Trump campaign in Russia. You can make contrasts, and you can make comparisons. While a few Republicans expressed surprise about the Comey firing, they aren't as critical as 1973. The country is way more polarized now. There's some question as to, to what degree Comey was investigating Trump. And you hear both sides there. On one hand, Trump, Comey has said that he wasn't investigating Trump. Trump directly. On the other hand, any investigation, you know, you're going to follow where the evidence leads, and it very well could have gotten there. The contrast there is that in 1973 with Archibald Cox, it was very clear he was directly investigating the president and the people directly around him. And there had already been public testimony. There had already been many things about Watergate revealed in 1973. It's very different from the election year of 1972. So firing him, it just immediately appeared like shutting down the investigation. Nixon's action was found to be illegal. He didn't have the authority to actually fire a special prosecutor like that. Trump's is, whether it's right or wrong, in his purview. The president can fire the FBI director. It doesn't happen that often we're actually going to talk about that, because you're hearing about that a lot. Most notably, the difference between 1973 and now is that there was a opposition party in Congress, and Nixon's step was an affront to them and encouraged them further. Now you have a same party in Congress, and it seems like an impulsive act. It was handled miserably, just like the Saturday Night Massacre events were. There's a number of questions about this president's connection to Russia, the connections of the Trump family businesses to Russian businessmen that are close with Vladimir Putin, connection of his campaign aides, some of them who had to resign because of their connections to Russia. And at the same time, there's an ongoing investigation of Russia's role in the the election and just general in hacking activities. But two things of note here. Presidents and FBI directors. I hear a lot about this now, and, you know, it's only happened twice in history, so that's true. You have President Trump has now fired his FBI director and President Clinton fired William Sessions in 1993. And you're hearing a lot about that Sessions firing. And in that case, it was, at least publicly stated, to be about his use of the plane for personal purposes, violating several of the FBI rules, just the way he ran the department. Okay, so there are only two in the, in the history. Well, you also have to remember that one person, J. Edgar Hoover, held that job from Coolidge to Nixon. And during that time, relations were often tense between he and presidents. In fact, I do believe that if it were politically possible to do so, if he didn't possess so much information and influence to make a president have a really bad time if they tried to fire him, I think uh, JFK or his brother RFK would have uh, would have gotten rid of Hoover. Also, in regards to Clinton and William Sessions, yes, it's true it was about an investigation that was requested by Attorney General janet reno it wasn't like bill clinton out to get sessions necessarily and there were investigations that even predated the clinton administration about his conduct that had needed to be investigated and needed the proper time and then it it came out it also did occur in the in the in the aftermath of the, the waco and the david koresh compound and some mistakes the fbi made and You know, that might have elevated the tension between the president and the FBI, General Reno, and the FBI. And that's not something that's talked about in the media accounts that you're hearing these days. You had the odd event of the Nixon presidential library in your Belinda kind of trolling Trump in a tweet saying, uh, Nixon never fired an FBI director. Hashtag, not Nixonian. (laughs) He didn't directly... But he told his aides kind of similar verbiage from what we're hearing that Trump may have handled it, like find a way to get rid of Gray. Uh, his his FBI director was L. Patrick Gray, who took over after J. Edgar Hoover's death during the Nixon presidency. Gray was a Nixon loyalist, but he got into trouble when he revealed in congressional hearings that he destroyed documents on behalf of Nixon. He claimed. His son, writing a memoir after his death, uh, also claims they had nothing to do with Watergate. But they did likely have to do with the dirty tricks of the Nixon campaign that were kind of a tie to Watergate. So even that you can contest back and forth. Gray either destroyed them in his fireplace or dumped them in the Potomac River. (laughs) Because he revealed it to Congress, Nixon didn't want him anymore. And there's a quote that he wanted to let him die in the wind. And because of what he did, he was getting a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pressure from Democrats in the media to have him resign. So Nixon said, find a way to get rid of him. In effect, demanded his resignation to his aides, and Gray did resign. So, sure, he didn't fire him, but it was at his encouragement and insistence. I think a huge difference simple fact that it's 2017 and not 1973. It was so shocking in 1973, but now we live in a kind of Watergate zeitgeist, uh, probably best described by Bob Woodward's shadow, where each president after Nixon just all faced various investigations, some of them for small things. like Sure, Iran-Contra was a big one, but for others it was with Jimmy Carter know, Burt Lance and his Georgia bank became like a huge scandal. Ham Jordan, his visit to Studio 54, possible cocaine use, just was elevated almost to a kind of a Watergate level um anything a president did was subject to scrutiny and i think that since then particularly 911 perhaps as a catalyst some opinion has changed to the other direction that more power should go back to the presidential office in order to run the government better re-strengthen the executive branch concept of executive privilege uh unitary executive concepts that the president has to act alone. You can't have anything like a Congress taking steps that should be run by the president, taking executive steps. Trump supporters are voting for him. You can probably imagine they, to a wide degree, will probably support the firing. They are not interested in the opinion of congressmen or legislators that they're going to think are part of the establishment they electing a president to go there and do a job. It's kind of a very different mandate than perhaps was handed Clinton or Obama from, from that perspective. Clinton's elected president, it's like, we want you to go in there and work with Congress and do a good job. Trump's elected to drain the swamp and do all of this stuff. So it's just this very different philosophy that we have at this time about how a president acts I guess you also have a president who is attempting, at least, to create his own media reality, to create his own meta. So I'm going to both act and also tell you how to interpret that act at the same time. Historical comparisons be damned. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. All while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So, check out what could go right wherever you listen to podcasts. One manifestation of this, I think you're seeing in this, you're going to see it all the time, as impulsive as the idea is, there's so many strange things that happen with this president, with this presidency that. It's an attempt, I think, to erode the amount of times that could be called out for something being crazy, wild, strange. Like, oh, well, that's just the way it is. It's kind of a chaos smokescreen. You can't even look at how divergent events might be or my actions might be because I do it all the time. The president's own rationality, I mean, some of the crazy things that Trump, he better be careful there's not tapes of our discussions before he leaks to the press. I I feel there's a crazy like a fox element to this president. I don't I don't think it's all just kind of uh, spontaneous within a within a core strategy that's pretty visible. Uh, I think the key historical takeaway, if you're gonna compare the Saturday Night Massacre of 1973 to this event, and I do realize that there are differences. The one lesson from the Saturday massacre is that Nixon did it to get less investigation, to try to throw off Watergate, to try to end it. And it had exactly the opposite effect. The next prosecutor that was appointed, because there was such a public outcry that a prosecutor had to be appointed, was just as fervent as Archibald Cox about getting those tapes and would take it all the way to the Supreme Court and get them. That's the kind of standard historical takeaway. I wanted to introduce one element, too. Kind of a different thing about the Comey firing than other people are talking about right now, because I find it interesting. It's an article from Columbia Journalism Review by Vanessa M. Ghazari. Anyone seeking further confirmation that Donald Trump's presidency is primarily a media story need look no further than surprise firing of FBI Director James Comey. According to a deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, Comey was essentially let go for talking to the press. That almost surely is not the real reason he was fired, but in this case, the media is both a smokescreen and a clue. Comey's ouster falls perfectly in line with the administration's broader positions on media control, leaks, and leakers. It also offers more evidence, in case anyone needs it, of Trump's overweening desire to control the news cycle. First, let's look closely at the administration's stated rationale as to why Comey had to go. In his memo explaining the decision dated the same day as the firing, Rosenstein wrote that the ex-FBI director erred by talking publicly in July about the decision to close the inquiry into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server while she was Secretary of State. In doing so... Comey usurped the Attorney General's authority. It's not the function of the director to make such an announcement. Gizari continues to write, Whatever you think of Comey's choices regarding the Clinton emails, it's not hard to read Rosenstein's memo as a screed against transparency, specifically when it comes to sharing information with the press. The subtext of Rosenstein's memo is that the FBI director and perhaps others in the Trump administration should sit down and shut up. It's not an encouraging message, yet it lines up with other recent moves against free speech. So writes Vanessa M. Guzzari in the Columbia Journalism Review, and I think it's a useful note, a useful warning. I have all kinds of listeners to this program. i got people left, right, center, everywhere. Even if all of these investigations come to, to naught and even if this Columbia journalism review story is not something that's, you know, pleasing to the year, um, look at it this way. Uh, these warning notes are, are important. Opposition to what appears to be any infringement in rights or quelling of investigation is important. And if the whole thing turns out that there's really no there, there. I think it's still essential that the critics are constantly there holding hands up, making sure making sure that democracy prevails, that there's a free press, and if the worst crime is that it was all overhyped, well so be it. Political actors on the stage are gonna be judged for what they do. They're also gonna be judged for the appearance of what they do. In Nixon's case, Nixon failed both. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Was so excited to have Thomas Oliphant. I think what a great interview he did with us about JFK 100. That's still going to be up on the site. And then his book as well is still up on the site. We have a link there to the premium podcast. It can be as little as $2 a month. You can help support the show and also get bonus episodes. There's over 20 bonus episodes available to you. One of the things I'm going to do is talk more about my interview with Oliphant and more about JFK and his rise to the presidency. Thanks for listening.